Hi, this is Jimmy Kimmel, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Hey, everyone. So if you're fans of that mellow California rock sound, then you're probably fans of the band America. And if you're fans, you're going to love today's episode. We have writer and rock journalist Jude Warren on My Rock Moment, and she wrote the authorized biography on America. So we're going to talk about the book, the band's journey, and then we're going to intersperse it with some of their biggest hits. So let's get started. I've been through the desert on a horse with no name. It felt good to be out of the rain. In the desert, you can remember your name. Because there ain't no one for to give you no pain. Jude, thank you so much for coming on My Rock Moment today. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. No, it's it's great, and I'm glad we were able to make it happen. And guys, for those of you listening, Jude is a music journalist. Now, Jude, you've written for The Vinyl District, The Film International, Live for Live Music, The Observer, uh, Journal of Popular Music and Society. I mean, I could go on and on. Yes, a bunch of uh, <laughs> publications, nice array. Uh, and then you wrote this beautiful retrospective on the band America, their authorized biography. And the way I, I will say this, for those of you listening, the way Jude goes into great detail about their journey as a band starting so young, literally their late teens, and then the backstories on some of the songs, it's incredibly compelling. Thank you. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, I wanted it to be, and their story is compelling anyway, but I do feel like I was a great or ideal counterpart in terms of what my strengths are as a writer in their particular story. I think it was a good match. So I feel that, that same way about the totality of it. So why America, though? I mean, what was it about this band that wanted to make you write this book? Well, it's interesting. I think the most basic reason for me personally was because I feel that their music as a whole, the catalog, entails the peace, love, and happiness trip that the 60s were about. Definitely. Um, so, right? And so um, consistently, like even after it ceased to be so in fashion, like through the 70s and the 80s, if you look at their material and the songs they chose to record, most of them have that same message. So they really yeah. stuck to it. Um, and they also took it, the essence of it, apart from um, the politics and, and social issues that were such a big part of the 60s also, but they seem to, on the whole, sidestep most of that in the writing where they stuck to the, the eternal elements of the era, which I think makes it more timeless. And so it was of interest to me um, as a writer. Yeah. You know, it's funny because, you know, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I'm a native Angelino. And these three guys, Americans had grown up in an Air Force base in London for the most part. And I, even though they weren't, you know, these SoCal beach guys, certainly look like it, <laughs> I regarded their music as quintessential Southern California classic rock. You know, that acoustic, mellow sound that was coming out of this area with so many bands, you know, from Crosby, Stills and Nash, or Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, to the Eagles, whoever you want to, you know, you want to call out. There were so many bands, but they were exemplary of that ethos, as you said, 
in Southern California at the time in the late 60s and the early 70s. And it's funny that you said that because that was the through line of the book for me. They never steered away from that ethos. They kept with it even when it wasn't as popular. It wasn't what was happening in contemporary music. And, you know, you got to hand it to them, the integrity of that band. Yes, they really stuck to their to their shtick, as it were. Because it <laughs> but I, I like that, too. When you think about what was going on in the 70s, it's such an interesting musical decade, but all the genres that were popping up, disco and then new wave and punk, so um, different in terms of their America's original um, thing. And they, they did stick to their to their ideals and their their sound ideals, I suppose, yeah. as a band. And it's interesting that, like you were pointing out, how they did come from, they were Air Force kids, so they traveled around a lot and lived in a lot of different places growing up. Um, and some of them spent, like Dewey, spent some time in California as a younger person, but n- not for an extended period, and that they wrote about California so well. And of course, they came to live here early on in their career. But it, to me, it almost took a bit of a, a slight outsider viewpoint at that time um of course his no name era i think dewey wrote that when he was living in england um and the outsider element of that and just being away from the california kind of heightened the senses that they were able to articulate in the songs mm-hmm. in that song in particular anyway um so it's interesting to, to think about their story and how they they did become a quintessential california band Chewing on a piece of grass, walking down the road. This time and place was so mythologized, you know, Southern California specifically in the 60s and 70s. And when you're an outsider looking in and the lifestyle that you perceive (laughs) people to be living there at that time can seem, you know, so much more palpable than those that are actually in it it, and in the day to day. And I think they really, you know, they defined, like I said, that ethos. But what was interesting, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I just, you know, I want to make this comparison. What was interesting is that they get to LA and they're thrown right in the middle of that scene and they're being represented by Geffen and they're staying at Geffen's place. And they really are experiencing that shift Mm -hmm. that went more from that singer, songwriter, it's about the music man to, hey, wait a second, we can be a cash cow. And yeah, more about the money. So they arrive in LA just as that shift is happening, and they're really confronted with the drugs, the glitz, the glamour, everything that's um, really starting to deeply emerge. The materialism within uh, the music industry here. Yes, and I think it was kind of um, an example too within the industry of what was also happening in the culture and society after the. At the end of the 60s, like with the um, the height of Woodstock um, in 69, August, and then that's also the same month that the Manson murders occur. And the 60s really started to, you know, people, doubt crept into the, the dream bubble, as it right. were. And then it, the year ends with the Elkmont Festival and the failure of that. Um, and it kind of has, I, I think that culture and society, American culture anyway, had this feeling about it, like it had failed slightly, you know, just like it, they couldn't keep the dream going. So the 70s, a lot of what the decade was about was trying to figure out 
what to do with those ideals and where they could go. Um, and like you said, I think there, this practical element came into it more like, well, how can we make this more real? It's not just ideals and the music can keep the ideals, but the, the practicality of it, the business end of it, um, it, it transcended the counterculture and became more in the mainstream culture and that was evident in the music industry too. But yeah, that's an interesting way. Muskrat, muskrat, candlelight, doing the town and doing it right in the evening. It's pretty pleasing. I want to jump to Billy Bob Thornton writing the foreword for this book. How did you how did you know he was a fan? Did you reach out to a few people? Was he like, oh no, 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 I want to do it? <laughs> <laughs> Please. Um I that was actually I I have to give credit where it's due, of course. Billy Bob is a close friend of Jerry and Dewey's for for years and a fan of the band. And they, you know, they're friends. And when I was discussing with Jerry and Dewey at that point, potential people who could write the foreword, they immediately thought of him and how, how much of an incredible writer he is and, and knowing the band so well. Um, and so that worked out very well for me. I was fortunate to be to be in that place at that time, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, he's a, their friend. And when you approached the band about doing this, you know, what was the level of receptivity? Were there any concerns? you know, about writing this very thorough biography? Um, it's interesting. I, I interviewed Jerry Beckley, I guess it was twenty was 2016 when his Carousel solo record came out. So that's how I met him. It was for the Vinyl District. Um, and we had such a great conversation. And I really got into, you know, figuring out the possibility of writing their full story on my end, how I would want to do that creatively. And it really... It was speaking to me. It felt good. Um, and so when I did approach Jerry Dewey and their management and stuff and, and my agent, of course, um, there were some conversations and it always had a positive tone, although it, and it was a good learning experience for me. These things take time. So oh, yeah. there were conversations and, it, you know, probably about a year by the time we ended up signing something together in our, our contract, um, my publishing contract. And stuff. But yeah, that did take a bit of time, but I have to say from the get-go, when I spoke to Jerry Dewey, they were immediately receptive to the ideas I had presented, like the main arc of the book, how I was presenting, spinning the story. Um, so that was very encouraging to me, and it kept going forward, you know, um, slowly here and there on the business end, but th there was an energy to it from my perspective, you know, where, you know, don't, you keep going with this. This has, there's some promise here, and, and, it, and it proved true. I'm proud of and excited by the fact that the way, especially the chapter, the first, the opening of the book is about Horse of No Name, that song that kind of, that's how I present their kind of images, of, sonic images of band. Um, and I think that spoke to them. And also, I think what worked well was um, I, there were some, of course, they were extremely successful from, from Horse of No Name. 
immediately with that single coming out. Extremely successful band, but after the first couple of albums, and I think a lot of this had to do with what we were just speaking about, the decade, how the 70s went into the 80s, um, they were kind of under-reviewed um, in terms of album reviews and 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 culturally like analyzing their their music there weren't there wasn't so much analysis out there and that's what i love to do and i sense an opportunity to be the one to do that because mm -hmm. it deserved analysis um in my opinion you know especially a lot of those 80s records they're really good a lot of the albums the parts of them and certain songs and i wanted to give attention to that and i think that worked well well so, i remember you can do magic when it came out in 82 yes. I mean, I'm dating myself now. I, I was three, um, so it may have been a couple years before I really <laughs> heard it. But I remember that song in the 80s, and I loved it, and my parents loved it. Yes. Um, my dad, when Horse With No Name came out, which was 71? Um, yeah, the end of 71 and then 72 really is when it got more popular. Exactly. My father and my mother were both graduating from high school. Okay. And they would literally play that song, my father specifically, because it was his favorite song and still is to this day. Um, yeah. You would play that song and you would hear it. You know, you brought your portable radio to the beach and you're listening to the radio stations, whatever AM radio station, you know, is playing yeah. it. And he's like, it was on repeat all the time. And I loved it. I never got sick of it. And yeah. so, of course, 25, 26 years later, that's what was playing in our household growing up. Right. And every time I hear that song and those quintessential beats, I think of my dad. And that song had such massive success. It's interesting that it struck a chord with so many people. Because if you really look at it objectively, it is very beautifully written, but a very simple song. Yes, and, and sometimes I think I think to the simplicity of the la 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 part, which I, I talk about in the the book is so catchy and very inclusive in terms of different, you know, people who speak different languages from different backgrounds can all kind of sing that that mm -hmm. beautiful line um, with those universal lyrics. Um, yeah. But it is also the, the story that's embedded within the song, I think, is this timeless theme, but also appeals to people of different generations about kind of taking yourself away from society um, and the group and, and finding yourself and just considering what life is about, um, mm -hmm. you know, away from the drama and turmoil mm -hmm. from what can come up in society and, and whatever decade you're, you're around in, it's there. Right. No, I think, you, I think you're right. It's breaking down life into the most simplest form, just a man and his horse in nature, away from everything, right. away from everything that the, you know, maybe the toxic footprint that mankind has left. And yes. I mean, it's very thought-provoking, very mm -hmm. thought-provoking. And as you were going into the backstories of a lot of these songs, obviously most notably Horse With No Name, you were obviously getting to know the band really well. Yes. So on a personal level, how was it working with Dewey and Jerry? I mean, it was a dream come true for me, of course, being a younger music fan, rock music fan, younger music writer, um, being able to speak to these legends that, of course, being having more than one interview, like was the usual with, you know, writing a newspaper article or something that I would be working on, having these multiple interviews, we get to touch on these different themes. Um, yes, their work mostly, they're different, all their albums we covered in their personal life growing up, being kids and stuff. But we also ended up speaking about, you know, the themes of life, like you do get to with a good friend, like, um, you know, love, marriage, religion, 
spirituality and you know in, in light ways but but those things came out and i think that friendship that formed um informs the book in a nice way i mean it's it's so authentic because their voices are so present which is what i wanted um but that was such a great time for me sure and did you feel that they were very genuine with you they they basically bore all you know they there wasn't anything that was off the table in terms of talking about writing about yes um i think to be fair too and i it it was clear from the get-go that the book because of how i like to write and their personas in in music history um it, it the book was always going to be mostly about their music and about how their records were made it was more about that than the personalized as you can see if you read the book. It's more about the music. Um, mm -hmm. I know some rock books do get into the nitty gritty personal stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But if you look at the, the past, um, the journalistic stuff that's out there about them from years back, they were never, they're pretty understated guys. You know, they're always about the music more or less in my, in my view. So that fits, I think the book echoed that, that, that um, quality. And if you think about what lasts, personal stories don't last always you know some of them may but what what people of future generations ideally what they hear is just the records and that's what that's what matters flying me back to memphis gotta find my daisy jane well the summer's gone and i hope she's feeling the same and how was it, well, I guess I should ask, they probably were approached by a number of people to write this book. Yeah, I had heard that they were. Um, so, what so it was, was an it? honor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I felt very fortunate personally to be in that position and for them to agree to speak with me and to authorize, authorize the work. That was really special. And what do you think yeah. made, them, made them choose you, so to speak? <laughs> I think it was the opening chapter, the ideas that are in there in chapter one, um, and that were in my proposal that I presented to them, I think spoke to them because it pointed to the cultural weight of, of Horse With No Name. Um, and then from that point, you know, the cultural weight of their career. Um, and I think focusing on the music because that's what they were always about. I think that was a good match, like I said. Mm -hmm. um, and I think too, being a younger person, I wasn't there the first time around. Most of this music came out. Um, so it has, it's not a nostalgia based book. It can't be because I wasn't there. So I think it has more of a historical tone or that's what I was aiming for, you know, sort of removed because I was not there. Um, and sometimes it's almost like taking a, a younger, younger generation viewing it um, while acknowledging and honoring the history that that's there, um, pointing to the timeless element of it. Um, yeah, that transcends generations or personal anecdotes or, or attachments that listeners form from, you know, the first time I heard that song in 1972 or something, which is great. I love those stories also, but it was an interesting take um, from my perspective, not not having those. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, definitely not living it as the music's coming out. You know, it's a totally different perspective. Um, yeah, it's like a historical view, viewpoint. Yes, yeah. yes. And that must have been interesting for them, you know? I mean, yeah. you come out there, you're a popular group, and you're immediately being written about in all these different rock publications, you know, Rolling Stone or what was out at the time, Cream Magazine, whatever it was. Right. 
So you're getting those um, current and timely, um, you know, reviews of your music. Yeah. But as the years go on, you know, and you're opening your library and your art up to new audiences based on the time and what they're going through and what they're living through, they're going to receive it in a different way. Mm -hmm. You know, so I can understand how that was appealing to them. Hey, guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. Okay, guys, let's get back to the episode. So when it came out, how was it received by the band? Were they reading it along the way or were they just waiting for the finished product and that was it? <laughs> that was interesting. Um, they they didn't read any of it while I was working on it. We were interviewing the whole time and speaking with each other, but they hadn't they didn't read it until I had a, a first draft anyway. Um, so that was pretty far into the process. <laughs> so the moment that I turned it over to them, I was, you know, it was it was fun. It was exciting, but a lot rude on that because if, if they didn't like it, they it could have been squashed because um, it's their story. And that was our, you know, I wanted it to to sound that way to them. And it was so exciting hearing back from them after they, they read it for the first time and how excited they were and they loved it, which was really important to me. And it would be important to the fans because I wanted it to be the band's book as well as my you know opinion right. in there. But, but yeah, that was really exciting and encouraging. And they helped with some of the editing here and there, most, you know, with um, stories and stuff and hearing their feedback was so helpful to just another injection of truth, trueness <laughs> in there for me. That was, that was a very exciting day. Oh, of course. When the band themselves love what you put out there and love how you yeah. represented them, that's, I mean, it doesn't get any better. No better testimonial there. Now, speaking of when the book came out, though, it was May 2020. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> Fun time. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about that and I'm like, okay, how did the pandemic, you know, affect the release of the book? There were no book tours. There were no signings. Um, um, how did you navigate Well, I that? should start with the positive element first in that I'm so proud of and impressed that my publisher was able to get the book out on time and the original release date because as you and everyone remembers, all of us, that everything, almost everything was shut down. So yeah. that could have been paused for a long time in terms of um, the production and distribution of that, but it got out on time. And I'm, I'm so excited and proud of the printers and the people who showed up and packed the books up. And got them. <laughs> who um, actually went exciting. to work and yeah. <laughs> yeah, something I hadn't thought about beforehand for so much to that level and then just appreciating, appreciating that. We did have some book events planned originally around, you know, there, we had an uh, event in LA going on and one in New York and they got canceled along with the band's yeah. tour and most other, I mean, all of their band's tours pretty much at that time. Um, yeah. So that was Where sad. Was it I'm supposed so, to be in LA? It was going to be at the Barnes and Noble at the Grove. Oh um, gosh. Oh, it's which crazy. would have been really exciting. I know. Um, just to get a date that works for everyone. It was so I exciting. No. Um, but these were unprecedented. I mean, this has never happened before. It turned our world turned upside down for a while and it's still trying to get back on its feet. So it's so odd. Obviously not didn't anticipate that part of it. But yeah, it got out there, which I I hope people got some pleasure out of that, you know, perhaps reading it not such a great time in, in <laughs> society and life. 
people had more time on their hands. So that's the, I mean, that was the silver lining. And I actually did meet, as a side note, Jerry and Dewey years ago at the Sunset Marquee when Jerry was showcasing his artwork, or was it his photography? Yeah, his fo- his photography. His um, photography that's at great. the gallery. Wow, that's fantastic. I love his photos. Um, they're so unique and, and interesting. Um, but that's See, so great. it was a few Thanks. years ago, and I remember overall that I enjoyed his work, but mm-hmm. I wasn't at the time able to buy anything. Um, yes. But... I remember meeting them and they were both so kind. And the one thing I noticed too was that they kind of blended into the crowd. They were yeah. kind of your everyday type guys. They're that, unassuming and understated for sure. Yes. Say, and that then... made them more attractive. <laughs> oh, I mean, I loved, I mean, I loved the moments, you know, first of all, earlier in their career where they're trying to kind of just figure it all out. You yeah. know, I mean, they're probably 19, 20 years old and they're dealing yeah, with so record young. labels that are asking to asking them to sign away their rights. And, <laughs> you know, they're like, who do we go with? Where are we going? Where are we living? You know, there were so many questions that they were trying to answer and navigate on, along the way. I mean, it's hard enough growing up at that time. But when you're jumping right. on the moving train that is called fame, um, yes. it's a lot harder to navigate. And when you talked about them finally deciding to pack it up and move to LA because they felt like things were happening there and the culture mm-hmm. shock of the David Geffen scene and being immersed in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was one part where you, they met David Crosby and they said, we're big fans. And he's like, that's obvious. obvious. <laughs> that's a great, that's a lot of people's favorite <laughs> part of the book. It comes up a lot. Um, it's because it's character. so Crosby. Exactly. Um, yeah, and and speaks to the the influences of of Crosby, Stills, Nash, Sound, which showed up in a lot of groups at that time. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I love that. I love that they connected met up. Oh, definitely. And and I think in the book, you know, you mentioned that that sound, that harmonizing, that acoustic sound, had been stress tested primarily by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Crosby, Stills, Nash. And they obviously, you know, blew the lid off the charts. So they were walking right into a very receptive crowd. Right. I think, yeah. And that speaks to the the success, too, of that first single, um, in addition to it being great, but just the people were ready for it. You know, Um, teenagers and young people wanted to hear that sound. And it Mm -hmm. spoke right to that, which was perfect timing. One morning, I woke up. And a new, new world. A new day, a new way, a new And I didn't know, first of all, Jerry, Jerry Beckley had a house, you know, I, a few blocks away from where I used to live. You know, he was oh, in the wow. Bird Streets and I yes. didn't know that he was right up there and that he was so um, in the scene, so to speak, you know. Yeah, um, and that people, I mean, his house was really, you know, a place to come. Rod Stewart, he would talk about, Ron Wood coming by, um, yeah. just a whole slew of rock stars. Yes. Um, he was friends with the Paul and Linda McCartney. 
Yeah, the, the scene at that time, I think being in LA with all of those artists was such a great place to be. Um, and that they were right in there with, with their the success of their their music was was wonderful. Um, and I think too, Jerry was such a great producer and that, that proved more true even like as the years went by in the 70s and he worked with different artists producing David Cassidy records and stuff. Mm-hmm. He's great in the studio. Um, and I yeah. think that was sensed too among the other artists and musicians that were there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. And Harry Nilsson, he worked yes. uh, closely with, and, and that, that was another story I laughed at when, I think it was Dewey walked into the studio. Um, oh, I'm blanking out on which studio it was, but he walked in and he sees Mick Jagger and Bianca Jagger playing air hockey with each other. Yes, and like- then he walks into the <laughs> studio and he sees Harry, Harry Nilsson and uh, John Lennon behind the control room. <laughs> yeah. Was- and they just kind of, hey. I mean, and he said, I couldn't believe it. I was so freaking nervous. It's almost that imposter syndrome, right? You're like, wait a second. They're just regarding me as just a contemporary appear here, you know, and I'm standing with some of the greats, some of the rock and roll greats. Yeah, I think too, because their ascent was so rapid that they didn't have some artists, you know, work for years on, on the road, building up the following slowly, and then they hit that moment of success. And that's wonderful, too. But because theirs happened so quickly, like like we're saying, the culture shock moments was really um, intense um, and just great. And that they were so young, too, and it was happening. Um, and that's the thing. They were so young and it's such a success story on their part mm-hmm. that they didn't veer into the darker side of things. Yes. You know, there was a real dark, seedy underbelly of Los Angeles at the time. There always yes. has been. Um, but you could easily step over the line. It's true. Um, that's, a, that's a great, yeah. I, I like to think about that, too, with Los Angeles, just the, the whole the L.A. noir thing. Um, the brighter the sun, the darker the dark that's there. You know, um, I love that contrast. It's great for, for mystery novels, but also, <laughs> like you're saying, with... Um, with with our lives and especially being young and having so much access to everything in the 70s were a wild time i understand um you know with drugs and, and stuff being available but but to 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 fare well through that is definitely definitely mm-hmm. there, it's the classic rock star story right to come from humble beginnings and then instantly be thrown into this sea of success and wealth yes. and women and drugs um, and it's really a test of character to how you swim in that. How it do is. You navigate those waters. Yes. And you don't know how you'll do until you come to it. And most people in, in average life don't. Um, so it's an interesting test to be put to. I mean, course. look, I'm, I pretty much walk the straight and narrow to a degree, but you know, it's like yeah. at 20, uh, I don't know. You That's know, your you're giving me time kind of, right? Oh. God, you're still figuring out who you are. Yes. And they, they talked about, you know, even starting out in London. Oh, where were they living? It was, they called it Dirt Pit Manor. Yeah, this <laughs> lovely residence <laughs> of teenage guys. <laughs> they were all sharing that was paid, was it paid for at least with, you know, the money they were getting from the label. Yeah, time. it was a, a small, you know, a, a, quite a contrast to what they quickly went into once they had their or single and, and moved to LA. It was such a stark contrast. Um, and so many people, you know, artists spend a long period in that element of their career at the, not the bottom, but kind of the bottom, you know, um, working your, your way up. But uh, I love that that part of their stories is fun. 
sure. it's incredible. I love it. it. You you do relate to them so well there, and that you know has got to be like what like you know seventy or something, and then three years later they win best new artist at the Grammys right. in nineteen seventy three. They win over the Eagles. They win over John Pride. I mean, it's incredible how quickly they rose. Yeah, um, and. A, a testament to the quality of, of the music and also the the hitting hitting the time right like we were speaking about before um it, it was perfect they were the great they're the right guys for the right right time i like to think but along with the the, the scene too that was going on there the eagles um all those great socal rockers question for you there as you were talking you know this through with them and and their quick and meteoric rise was there ever you know a conscious thought in their head or must have, it may have been quite frequent um did they think to themselves where do we go from here how do we keep this up yeah the early years the first couple of albums um homecoming second record and hat trick and and holiday on the H. <laughs> um, I think it, they recorded them so quickly too. I mean, especially in the first couple of albums, they were kind of sitting on this backlog of songs because they had been writing so much, um, and that was an intense trip experience recording those those albums. Um, I think they almost didn't have time to think about that kind of thing at that mm -hmm. period. They ended up, um, I believe, later thinking more about how how meteoric their rise had been and. and seeing how remarkable that was the older they got and stuff. At the time, I think it seemed like part and parcel of how, what the rock star story is supposed to be. You know, you're, you have success right off the bat and, and it keeps ascending, you know, and that's what happened to them, but it doesn't happen to most artists that quickly and, and in that particular way. So they were kind of like a textbook story and then learned, figured, you know, considered later that, that it doesn't happen to everyone that way. Um, but that's why I think their, their time in the eighties Yes, they had that incredible success with um, You Can Do Magic, um, A View From The Ground, that record was was major hit. Um, but then even after that, and, and as the 80s wore on, them thinking about how to, you know, stay the, the artists they wanted to stay and how to find, continue to find a place in the changing music industry. Um, and then they really turned to touring a lot at that point. And in my view, they kind of, that was them paying their dues after the fact in a way. A lot of bands spend that eight years or something touring and building up following and then mm -hmm. having a hit record, but they come to the hit record first and then ended up doing that, that paying the dues thing later, which I find so fascinating and a testament to how, um, how much integrity they have as artists, the band, um, and how strong they are as, as people if they were able to keep that up and Definitely. do it well. And to do it right on the cusp of, you know, leaving their label. Right. Yeah, yes. And to say, OK, you know what, we're going to part ways here. We're all going to roll up our sleeves, everybody in the band, everybody who's involved with the band. And we are going to go out on the road, you know, and like you said, that, that's what a band does when they're uh, paying their dues in the beginning. Right. And how record sales were beginning to change a lot at that time, too. Um, people buying albums and stuff. And, and I think touring was such a great way to go. And it was very early. I mean, Nowadays, in the last 20 years, most fans 
lot of bands have have turned to touring to to have their main source of what they do. Yes, they make music and great records and stuff, but, but touring is such a big part of their sustenance as an ongoing act, and they kind of turned America turned to that early. Um, so I I think that's such a, another testament to their their band character. They figured that out before a lot of other people did. Mm-hmm. This is for all And I love how, as the times change, like you said, you know, with the onset of the 90s and people, you know, wanting a less commercialized, less pop sound and the acoustic, the rise of the acoustic uh, music, you know, being so much in the forefront. You know, you had, you know, the MTV. um, Right, the unplugged stuff Mm -hmm. that came back into vogue. um, Exactly. And they were right there for that, which was really... Because their music fit it perfectly. It was still like that. That's (laughs) how it was supposed to be played, right? (laughs) I loved MTV Unplugged, and I also loved it when they had, yeah, I wish, why don't we have that anymore? (laughs) I know. I mean, when VH1 and MTV actually played music, and I remember turning on Unplugged, and, you know, you had everybody from Nirvana to Eric Clapton on there. Yeah, yes. And it was such a wonderful stage for some of these some of these artists that had maybe aged out a little bit, you know, in yes. the previous decades. Mm-hmm. It was a great way for the, them to come back into the, in a more rel- relevant way with younger people um, and to use M- MTV for good, <laughs> not just uh, if they didn't love the music video scene, it was a nice way to. Yeah. That. Yeah. <laughs> I do remember that part of the book where it was like, wait a second, we're not music video guys. Yeah. They did no. not like that. No. And I understand their point and, you know, um, them referencing what Bob Dylan had said about uh, music videos as well is you write lyrics so the listener can create that movie in their head, their right. own personal movie and yeah. not have it hampered by the images that you're throwing in front of them and you want them to ingest. Yes. And the danger of that, too, if music and it has, unfortunately, I mean, in today's music, it's built up to that a lot of what's popular is the visuals are at least half of the the appeal and the communication, some of which is incredible what people do with music videos. But there is something taken away sometimes from from the the value of the songs themselves um, and and deprive the listener of of what we're talking about, having that moment to imagine and and dream and and trip on the the possibilities of the song story and stuff. Mm hmm. And as music has evolved, you know, with technology and everything, we've got all these different platforms. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not to mention, you know, radio itself having very customized uh, radio stations that yes. cater to rock and roll or classic rock or mellow rock, whatever it is, yeah. you know, um, at any given point, you can turn on the radio today and hear one of their songs. My brother is eight years younger than me. Sister Golden Hair is one of his favorite songs. I love it. It's a fantastic song. It is. And it calms him down. He's an intense guy. (laughs) (laughs) Good. 
yeah, dark music has a calming effect on a whole. I've I've gone to it for that too. Um, before I got into the book trip, um, I would go to their music to to mellow out, and it does have that effect. It's really remarkable, especially the song "I Need You." There's almost an um, an ethereal kind of uplifting quality to it. Yes, you know, almost like a dreamlike um, aspect of it. It is. And Jerry was so young when he wrote that. I think he was only 16 or, or 17, 16. Um, and it was, it's such a, it has some maturity in it in terms of the, the love, um, the love that he presents in the song, which I'm impressed by. Um, and other people ended up recording that, of course. Um, mm-hmm. I think Harry Nilsson recorded it later, which was I great. I would have to have heard friends. that. Yeah, I think it might have been, I have to check the timing on that, what part of Harry's career that was, because it was after his his voice wasn't as as great as it was when it started out, you know, it wasn't as, um, his Hollywood vampire stage. Right. All right. So taking a step back, high level view, since you know, the band, literally, um, and their backstory, you know, arguably better than most. Mm-hmm. If you were describing America the band to the new generation today, how would you describe the band? How would you sum up their accomplishments? Um, I would say there are key 70s, 80s SoCal rock bands that was part of the LA scene. So they're a California band. They, they captured the California feeling. Mm-hmm. They're a transplant band that captured the California sound better than most native Californians. <laughs> yes, there you go. Um, exactly. When you think about, too, how many other artists as well who, who seem to be based on their music or have the quality of being this California artist, even like Joni Mitchell and Neil Young, who were Canadians, they were outsiders, so to speak, from that point as well. But and they were some of the best articulators of that feeling. Um, mm-hmm. And the Eagles too. I think Glenn Fry was from the Midwest, and more Don Henley was from Texas. Kind of transplant type that people that really articulated that that feeling and sound, which is interesting. Yeah, and for the most part, again, that's what it was. It was mythology. Right. Not right. to say that you couldn't come out here and drive down, you know, Highway One with the wind in your hair and go sit yeah. on the beach under a palm tree. You can do all those things. You can do all those things when you. And I think the Beach Boys probably started started this in terms yes. of really creating that that, like I said, that, that exactly. mythology. But um, yeah, when you think about it objectively, it, it's almost a lot easier to write about it. Mm-hmm. It's a state of mind. It's well. a state of the mind. Place. A state of mind. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me the excitations. I'm backing up good vibrations. She's giving me the excitations. Well, dude, I want to jump to I want to jump to your career as a rock journalist. What what kind of fostered this love of rock? What made you go down this road? Um, well, I grew up in a, a classic rock obsessed household. So I'm an only child. I grew up in New York City and my parents were big rock people. Um, I mean, they're more than fans. They're artists themselves. Like my dad's a visual artist. My mom is a musician. Um, but they were huge rock, you know, they're 
very involved in, in the New York rock scene for from the 60s on. Um, oh, wow. And just be, you know, going to shows and really being present and studying the records and stuff. So so I grew up with the the feeling that this is very important, you know, as much as I um, instinctually responded to different music I heard around the house, um, there was a kind of importance injected in there that I picked up on um, and I ended up, you know, agreeing with. So that was how it came to me. So I always felt like I was learning about it. I would ask my parents about different songs and albums that they had on. Um, and then as I got older too, even into like 11 and 12, sometimes I'd have a certain summer where I purposely studied a certain artist, like um, started with the classics, you know, the Beatles and stuff. Like one summer, my dad and I, I learned all about the Beatles. We watched the anthology documentary series, which I don't know if it's around anymore, but it was just great, um, their story, you know, um, and just kind of cataloging all the records in my mind. I studied film at NYU, but I, I ended up reviewing doing film reviews and then got into music reviews because that was really my first love. And I'm a musician myself. I mean, I sing and oh. play piano. I've studied it, so I have a knowledge of it. Um, so that's a great meshing of, of interests and, and, and skills. Um, but yeah, it's like a, a dream job. It doesn't feel like a job. It's more like a, <laughs> I do not want to say calling because that sounds really <laughs> obnoxious, but it's more like a, you know, it, it feels spiritual to me and, and emotional and mental course um but it doesn't feel the job elements of it is, is secondary um mm-hmm. so that's super cool and jumping back i want to ask you were there any interviews that you've done that you would consider highlights of your career because i mean i look and you've interviewed folks from the yardbirds steely dan the almond Betts band Procol harem and jerry beckley's son as well <laughs> not beckley yeah any standout um i mean they're all so much fun for me um i have personal moments that i something it's funny what you remember what i remember sometimes are like the more personal elements that aren't even part of the the interview but the human uh conversations that we had even offline um just being a music fan and getting to speak with these legends on that level um like jim mccarty um i interviewed him which was a great interview and just the art virtual session essential rock band if you look at rock history and and all their music um but we spoke about acupuncture (laughs) because we both were getting it and it's just like a nice human conversation not in the interview but but that fun (laughs) stuff and then moments like um i interviewed jimmy webb for the book for the america book which was incredible i'm such a fan of his songwriting getting his speech was exciting and he started our call with hey jude so he he sang like part of the song to me and i was really excited (laughs) um you know those fan moments but but in terms of the the writing part of it um i think yeah jerry beckley that interview that i did before the book for vinyl district is one of my favorites i just feel like the it really clicked so well with my vision of what the band was and Jerry's comments. And he's so articulate and, and intellectual, Dewey is as well. Um, and that came came through. And I, I I like to go there intellectually with questions. So I think the meeting of that was really great. That's one of my favorite uh, favorite pieces. And Donald Fagan, I, I'm such a fan of his work. Love him. Um, <laughs> and getting to speak to him for a moment around the Nightfly Flyers tour um, was incredible. Nightfly is like one of my favorite albums of all time.
So what's next for you? Um, I'm working on, I'm developing a, a new book um, that focuses on classic rock, but how younger groups nowadays, younger people are responding to that and rearticulating that in their own way. So carrying the message and the music forward, but reinventing it at the same time. Um, oh. So I'm trying to reach younger people as well and bring them into the rock history thing. So where I hope to have to get to speak more about that soon. Um, it's going well. And then I also have another, I wrote a chapter for this anthology on the band that's oh. coming out soon. Um, maybe this year, I think it might be later this year that the book's coming out. Um, it's called the rags and bones and interdisciplinary approach to the band and it's different writers just reflecting on different elements of the band's career and stuff. And my chapter is on, um, it's an analysis of the stage fright record, which is one of my favorite records of, of theirs. So that'll be coming out soon, which I'm, I'm excited about. Yeah. Oh, well, you've got some good stuff going. And I'm excited to read about that that book in terms of the younger generation keeping this music alive, you know? And I can definitely hear you live in New York. <laughs> I can hear those sirens. It was the, the exact siren. type of ambient noise I was expecting. I'm like, there's those sirens. <laughs> yeah, all the time, nonstop. It never sleeps. Because <laughs> the free wind is blowing through your hair And the days surround your daylight there Seasons crying, no despair. Alligator lizards in the air. In the air. Uh, Jude is one of the greatest gals, and she is one incredible writer, too. So, guys, I highly recommend her book, and you'll find a link to the book in the show notes. So, check those out. And it sounds like she's got some fun projects coming up too, so we'll definitely keep an eye on her. But thanks for listening, everyone, and we will see you at the next episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.